Good morning again to everybody. So, my name is uh, Brad Sorensen. I serve here as a here's, here's an elder here at the church. I uh, just want to welcome everyone who, uh, whether you're joining us here on campus this morning or whether you're online, we're glad, glad you're here. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, just a special welcome to you this morning. Uh, in the uh, pew just in front of you, there's a welcome card. Uh, if you wouldn't mind just filling that out, we'd just like to know who you are and uh, if uh, the church can be any of service to you here. Uh, if you want to find more information about the church, uh, you can visit our website at rosedalebiblechurch.com. Uh, if you have kids, uh, we do have children's church for kids uh, pre-K through the fifth grade. Uh, they'll be dismissed just prior to uh, the message here this morning. They'll be uh, dismissed out to the foyer, and then they will be guided uh, out to their, uh, to their classrooms. And uh, just... You know, just one announcement here this morning. Uh, next Sunday, again, that's next Sunday, that's April the 3rd, uh, there will be a welcome new members lunch, okay? So on this Sunday, uh, next Sunday, we'll be celebrating uh, new members. Uh, there will be a baptism service, and then again, immediately following the, uh, the church service, and we will have a lunch uh, over here in the social hall then. Uh, you know, before I turn it over to Joel, uh, I know you guys won't mind. I just want to read Revelations 5, uh, verse number 12. It says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So, you know, why do we meet here every Sunday? It's not because it's some tradition, right? It's not because it's a, a box we have to, uh, we have to check. It's because he is worthy, and we're going to praise him this morning. Joel. So this morning, uh, before we come to our first song uh, this morning, we want to take time to pray for the lost. We do that uh, once a month here, and that's this Sunday. And we want to make sure that this morning that we are remembering Christian Christian leaders, all right? Because unfortunately, we know uh, if you even watch the news, there was even a, a, a major Christian leader, uh, actually the founder of Hillsong Church that was just had to resign because of, of things that were um, leveled against him as far as just he wasn't walking, walking the walk. And so uh, I can't speak to his relationship with the Lord Jesus, but I do know for a fact that there are many Christian leaders in our culture and in our world around us that are calling themselves Christian and maybe uh, wearing the hat, who knows the reason, and maybe have no relationship with the Lord Jesus at all. And that's a very tragic thing to have uh, in, in a Christian culture. And so we want to uh, make sure that we lift up all of the Christian leaders, the people that you know that you hear are, are out there uh, at the head of, of different Christian organizations, and just pray for their relationship with Christ. Pray that, that they would walk in truth and in biblical truth, and that if there are some there who are simply wearing the hat and have not really made the Lord Jesus their Savior, that they would do that, and they would not walk in hypocrisy. And so that's kind of our focus of our, our prayer time, prayer for the lost this morning. So maybe as I'm praying, think of a name. Think of someone that you know 
that uh, maybe you do know that they're walking with the Lord and you just want to pray that they would walk closely with Him, but maybe you are not sure and only the Lord really knows where people's hearts are at. And so let's, let's pray for that this morning and uh, then we'll do some singing together. Lord Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to come before you in your house and, and to praise you and worship you. And as we come this morning, we want to be, as we say in our, our missions and vision statement, desperate to reach the lost. And so as we uh, come together, we want to take time to pray for those that are lost. And we know that there are lost individuals, even as Christian leaders in the world around us who are, are labeled as Christian leaders, but maybe even don't have a relationship with you, a genuine relationship with you. And so, Lord, we would pray for these individuals that they would no longer walk in, in secrecy or in hiding, but that they would recognize their own personal need for a Savior. Lord, that no matter how famous you are or what kind of platform you stand on, all of us are sinners and all of us need the saving grace of the Lord Jesus to rescue us and to buy us back. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would just touch their hearts. God, we pray for those that uh, maybe have, have worn the label and have fallen in some way and have done quite a bit of damage to the reputation of the church. And we pray that you would salvage those, those situations, Lord, and that you would bring those that are hurt out of those situations to know you as the Savior in, in truth, Lord, and that they would come to, to give their lives to you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to become more and more desperate to reach the lost. You'd help us to be aware and praying for and looking for people that we can share Christ with. What a great opportunity that we have as believers to be part of your work in the world. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and we pray as we come together uh, in song and in the reading of your word um, and fellowship and prayer that all the things that we do together as a church today would not only be encouraging to our hearts, but they would be honoring to you. They would be a sweet aroma and a sweet fragrance to you. We ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we? All right. I might ask you to get your clappers going.
why don't you come on up? We're going to um, do our scripture reading now, and we're taking a little break from the book of John. We will come back to it, but with all the new events coming up over the next few weeks, we're doing a few different scriptures. And so, James, thanks for reading this morning. Good morning. Today we'll be reading from Psalms 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessings, life forevermore. May God be blessed by the reading of his word. Amen. Short passage, but uh, really speaks a lot to the um, unity that we have in Christ, which is uh, something that we're uh, going to be talking about uh, later in the Word. We're going to be talking about the, uh, the way we maintain unity uh, as believers. And so um, as we're thinking about that, uh, that unity is something that happens usually when we surrender something about ourselves, right? How can we be unified with someone else unless we're willing to let go of some things about our own, uh, our own lives, uh, to lay our lives down for one another, right? And so the song that kind of came to my mind uh, as we uh, get our hearts ready for the word is, I surrender all. It would be something that we would want to tell the Lord to, uh, to help us in our unity is that we would first surrender ourselves to him, and then we could begin to surrender to each other to create that unity that he has intended for us as believers. So let's uh, let's sing that that together. Yes, all to Jesus I surrender all to him I freely give I will Spirit, 
Last week, uh, we learned a new one that I'd like to uh, redo this morning uh, simply because it talks very much about this idea of unity, which centers around Christ, right? If there's nothing to be unified around, it's going to be pretty hard to achieve unity, but Christ is the one that we are unified around, right? And so as believers, when we come together and we try to, to achieve that, we need to be looking to Christ as that source of unity. So this simply says Christ is our hope in life and death. It's Christ alone. It's Christ alone. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls to Him belong? Who holds our days within His hand? What comes apart from His command? And what will keep us to Our hope in life and death. Oh, sing. 
a seat. Good morning. Is everybody doing this morning? Well, excellent. I wanted to mention a couple things before we get into our sermon here. Uh, I know Brad uh, talked through some announcements, but I just wanted to say from the front here one more time, uh, remind everybody that next Sunday is our membership and baptism Sunday. And I want to remind you again that we will have uh, Lord willing, we'll welcome new members, we'll have some baptisms, and we'll have a meal afterwards. And so that meal is a really important time, as the elders have thought about this, it's a really important time for us to, you might say, extend the right hand to fellowship. So that's an opportunity for us to meet these new people, uh, get to know them, talk to them, and have a meal together. And so we really want to encourage you to stick around for that meal. Uh, I don't know what we're eating. Does anybody know what we're eating? Do we know yet? Baked potatoes? Mmm. Okay. All right. I can do that. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you, Dennis. Sounds good. Uh, we look forward to that. Uh, also, one other uh, quick announcement. After service today, we are going to do a family day meeting over here in the fireside room. Uh, and so, uh, this is, it's in your bulletin. Uh, it's immediately following the service. Family day is May 1st. And so if, if you may not know what that day looks like, but many of you probably remember what that day looks like, but if you, if you have any interest in serving with kids, if you want to be a part of that day, thinking through planning, uh, thinking through events, anything related to that day, uh, Family Day, May 1st, we encourage you to meet over in the fireside room here. We're going to have a light lunch as well. And so please come to that meeting, even if you don't know and you just want to get something to eat. I mean, you're welcome to join us. So I encourage you to, to come. Uh, that'll be directly after our service this morning. With that, uh, if you don't mind, would you please stand? Uh, I'm going to read our passage of Scripture and then pray for us this morning as we begin. Uh, this is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 13. It's on page 977 of the Blue Bible. Uh, if, you're just, if you don't have a Bible, you can just listen as I read. Uh, Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 13, and then I'll pray. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to be in your word this morning. I pray, Lord, that this, that this passage this morning would wash over us, Lord, and it would uh, empower us and compel us uh, and invigorate us, Lord, to pursue 
to preserve, to protect, to guard, to make every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, Lord. Uh, Be with us this morning. Lord, we want to pray briefly for Danny. We want to lift him before you, and we pray, Lord, for the leadership of this church. We pray that you would continue to to, uh, mend him, Lord, and that he would be back to ministry quickly, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for this church, and we pray, Lord, now that you would be with us as we engage with your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. What's the biggest purchase that you have made in your life? The biggest purchase that you've made in your life? It's probably a home. For many of us, it's a home. Maybe it's a piece of land. Maybe it's a large piece of equipment. Maybe it's a car. Maybe it's a bicycle. Bikes can be very expensive. Uh, Whether it's a a home or a car or a bike, uh, maybe it's a phone or a computer. Maybe it's a piece of jewelry. Maybe it's a piece of art. Maybe it's a musical instrument. For some of us, the largest purchase that we ever make or that we've, we've made up to this point could be a hundred hundreds of dollars, could be thousands of dollars, could be hundreds of thousands of dollars. For some of us, it might even be millions. Whatever the amount, being our largest purchase, it makes good sense that we would keep the item working in good condition. That makes sense to us. It makes good sense for us to maintenance the item, provide maintenance on the item. If you want to extend the life, the life of your biggest purchase, it pays to practice routine maintenance. Would you agree? Yes. Okay. You all agree. Okay. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning, currently we're in a study of the book of Ephesians. We just read from the book of Ephesians. Um, last week, we stepped away from that book. We had a message from the book of Numbers, but this week we're going to return to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, as I've read from this morning, it represents a transition in the book of Ephesians. It's somewhat like a hinge verse, and the the book kind of shifts on this this chapter, Ephesians chapter 4, specifically verse 1. In the first three chapters, and Danny introduced us to this two weeks ago, the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians really focus on doctrine. It focuses on what we believe, you might say. The last three chapters of the book of Ephesians focuses more on practice. You might say what we do, how we live out what we believe. But Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This is kind of the, the canopy, you might say, that all of the elements, all the items in chapters 4 through 6 are going to be placed under. This is that hinge verse. Everything is going to kind of sit under this one idea that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So, we discovered two weeks ago that the first item that Paul puts under this canopy is the, idea, the, the concept of unity. So we talked about unity, and we saw that in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. That was the the first major thing that Paul puts under this canopy. Danny introduced us to that. God's people, you and I, are called to unity. So 
it's helpful for us to maybe talk a little about what talk a little bit about what is unity and what does it mean to be united. Quite simply, unity is the state of being undivided. We can understand that oneness is the idea of unity, a condition of being in harmony. Now, unity is important. It's very important in the Bible because unity is actually a characteristic of God. So, to understand unity, we have to understand something about who God is. You recall Deuteronomy 6, 4, kind of the, this is the anthem of Israel. It's called the the Shema. It's somewhat of their anthem, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We understand, we know that verse. And and this oneness of God, this unity that is God, uh, it works itself out in many ways throughout Scripture. So as we read uh, Scripture, we see the implications, you might say, of that unity that God has. Uh, Think about God's design for men and women. When men and women come together, they're what? One flesh. There's a unity there, Genesis 2.24. God originally created us to speak one language. Maybe sometimes we forget that, but we were created to speak one language. It was only when sin entered into the world, Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel, that the, la- the languages were divided. But there was a unity of language. Disrupted, sin disrupted that unity. God's oneness is applied to the laws of Israel. God's law applied to Israel, but it also applied to the foreigners. And in Numbers 15, God says that's because He is one, that all of His law, all those who are under Him, are going to fall into the same law. In Ezekiel 37, the, the prophet envisions a future unity of the nation of Israel. You recall that the nation of Israel was divided. The northern and the southern kingdom were divided. Well, Ezekiel 37 envisions that those, those nations come back together. They're, they're united. And Zechariah 14, the prophet speaks of a reunification of all people in the world. So God is a union. He is, he is one. And he desires that his people and all the nations actually come together, of course, to worship him and also to be one. John 17, Jesus also talks about unity. He talks about oneness. Jesus prays that His his disciples would be one as He was one with the Father, that His people would be one just like He was in union with the Father. He prayed that we might model our unity after the unity found in the Godhead. And such unity, bless you, has has been lived out, it was lived out in the early church. This is one of the staples of the way that the early church uh, practiced you know, their, their fellowship with one another was within unity with each other. Acts 2.42, uh, this is the early church, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They had all things in common. Chapter 4, verse 32 speaking again of the early church, now the full number, the community, the church, God's people, of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common, it says. Profound statements about unity in the early church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul uses this phrase, which he does repeatedly when, it, when he talks about unity, and that is just this idea that we're one body in Christ. 
We're one body in Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And so we know it sounds a lot like Ephesians 4, which we studied two weeks ago. There's one, Ephesians 4, 4, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. I'm saying the word one a lot. (laughs) Unity. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through and in all. So, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, all of these passages and all these ideas reveal to us that our unity, the unity of the church, is really, uh, it reflects who God is. Unity is a characteristic of God, and we see that manifested in many, many ways. And so for, th- for these reasons, unity is important, very important, and therefore must be preserved. It must be preserved. Or in the, in the words of, of Paul in Ephesians 4.3, it must be maintained. There must be maintenance that's done. And the idea of maintenance is something like preservation, to preserve, to protect, even to guard. And we see this come out in a couple different translations. Maybe you have the NASB translation in front, in front of you. Ephesians 4.3 there says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Being diligent to preserve. Maybe you have the NIV. The NIV says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Make every effort. Be diligent. Now, you've already agreed that it makes good sense to do maintenance on those items that we spend the most money on, really any item. It makes good sense to perform routine maintenance. And the concept of maintenance, I believe, is probably, it's easy for us to to grasp. We understand maintenance. We do maintenance on our cars, right? We change the oil. We change the the air filters. I know that some of you probably have a 100,000-mile checkup that you haven't done, right? Well, you're supposed to, You're supposed to do maintenance on your car. You're supposed to perform those routine maintenance items. What about your homes? How do we maintain our homes? Change the air filters. That's really the AC, but I mean it's connected to our home. We clean the pool. We pull the weeds. We patch holes. We paint. These are all connected to the idea of maintenance. What about our bodies? Don't talk about this one, but what about the maintenance of our bodies? How do we do maintenance on our bodies? got to eat your veggies. I know, I know. I don't like it either, but you got to do it. You got to eat your veggies. You got to pass on the donut. Maybe do a little exercise. All of these aspects are part of doing maintenance. We maintain our bodies. We maintain our cars. We maintain our homes. We understand that. Returning to the words of Paul, likewise, kind of arguing from the lesser to the greater, we have to do maintenance on unity. We have to maintain our unity. We need to apply ourselves actively to the process of maintaining unity in the body. What happens? You, you know it. What happens if we routinely fail to do maintenance on our cars, on our homes, on our bodies? We begin to go downhill. We begin to deteriorate, you might say. 
what we own, our most valuable possessions begin to deteriorate if we do, if we do not perform regular maintenance. Well, in the same way, if, if our unity doesn't have a maintenance, it will begin to deteriorate. I had these wonderful guitars on my wall at home. They're beautiful guitars. They were gifted to me. I don't keep them packed away because I like looking at them, okay? I know that they're better in a case, but I like looking at them. And so, but what happens is if, if I leave it there, it's in tune, but if, if, if I don't regularly go and tune it, if I pull it off every three months and play it, I pick it up, do you think it's going to be in tune? It's probably not. Now, these are really good guitars, and they do hold their tune a long time, but they, even those great guitars, over time, they need to be retuned. They need that maintenance. They need that maintenance. If we don't continue to persevere and protect our maintenance, we begin to fracture, we begin to divide, we begin to separate, we begin to become like those guitars out of tune. Now, one thing to keep in mind as it relates to maintenance is we have to remember that in the same way that those guitars are mine and your car is yours, unity is ours. You maintain the things that you own, that that are in your possession. And so being in Christ, we do have unity. There's a natural unity that comes with being in Christ. We're one body. That is true. But there is a call also to preserve, to protect, to maintain that unity. There's an element of that unity that must be maintained. Yes, as Christians we are unified, but we still need to preserve, protect, to guard our unity. Now, turning our attention to our sermon text this morning, I believe Paul is teaching us how to maintain Christian unity. He's going to give us, as I've kind of framed it this morning, he's going to give us maintenance, maintenance essentials for Christian unity. Maintenance essentials for Christian unity. So if Paul, I was asking Danny about this, if Paul were going to, a car, going to the car, you know, if he was going to do maintenance on a car, he'd go to the Chilton Manual. You know, if, if we were doing home, uh, you know, home repairs, maybe you'd have Bob Vila come over. I don't know. That's what I think of, you know. But Paul doesn't need the Chilton Manual. You know, we're not repairing cars. We're not repairing, repairing the home. We're repairing our unity. We're doing maintenance on our unity. And so all we need is God's Spirit and the Bible. We have the manual in front of us. And pa- Paul is going to guide us as we do and pursue maintenance for Christian unity. So the thesis this morning, the, the, the topic sentence, you might say, is Paul gives us three essentials for maintaining unity in the body of Christ. Three essentials. And so I'm going to give you three essentials. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now the grace that that Paul is speaking here is, is a gift. It's a gift. It's a grace gift. And we know that because it says according to the measure of Christ's gift at the end of the verse. So what Paul has in mind here, I believe what he has in mind here is something like spiritual gifts. That's what he's after here. We're all given a gift, a spiritual gift. And so we have essential number one right here. And it's simply this. Paul wants us to know that we have been equipped to maintain unity. Paul wants us to know that we've been equipped to maintain unity. That's essential number one. 
And although we use these gifts in the maintenance of unity, there's actually, you know, we, we, the purpose of the gifts is to, is to bring us together, but there's actually a diversity of those gifts. And so there's this wonderful, these wonderful aspect, aspects of diversity and unity both together. We're all given different gifts, so there's a diversity of gifts. Each of us is given a unique gift, or I might say a set of gifts, according to the measure of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says, The Spirit apportions to each one individually as He wills. Therefore, within the unity of the body, each of us has a distinct service to render for the effective functioning of the whole. A diverse amount of people with a diverse amount of gifts, all working for a common goal to preserve a common unity. That's what, that's what the gifts are for. You see, when we become Christians, we at the same time receive a, spe- a special function or a training in the Lord. And this training allows us to minister to the body. It, it's as if the Lord downloads a program in us. And that program is designed to preserve maintenance in the church. Excuse me, to preserve unity in the church. We're given a special skill set, you might say. So, question. Do you understand that you've been given a skill set? Do you understand that? I think, we, I think we recognize that we have been given a gift. I think we understand that. Um, I, I, unfortunately, I think sometimes that's where we stop thinking about it. We're called to employ that gift for a purpose, and that is one purpose for the unity of the body, the focus of our text this morning. 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Now, by definition, gifts are something we receive. Gifts are something we receive by definition. We receive them by an act of grace, hence a grace gift. We don't earn them, and they're not necessarily predetermined by our preferences uh, or our natural abilities or our merits, but solely, as it says here, according to the measure of Christ. He's the one who decides what gifts we get, what skill sets that we receive. In the same way, we don't get to choose our color of our skin, our eye color. We don't get to choose our height, our hair color. At physical birth, at physical birth we don't get to choose our skill set at, sp- at spiritual birth. He, he decides. Now, there are a number of places in Scripture that talk about these gifts and give lists of gifts. That's not my aim here this morning. We're not going to go down that path. Uh, But I do want to suggest that each of us is gifted in a unique way and in combination with other gifts. I do want to suggest that. Uh, I believe this is the best way to understand the collection of ways that the New Testament does talk about gifts. Because those gift lists don't match up and it's spoken of in different ways. Different ways. The primary places would be 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, if you're interested, if you want to look at those. There are other places as well. And so I think the best way to explain this is to think about gifts, something like we do a fingerprint or a snowflake, kind of that way, that we each have a, a, a different, unique gift package. They all look different. And so, for example, someone might have the gift of service, but they might also have the gift of teaching and the gift of leading. Another might have the gift of teaching and the gift of mercy. Each one is somewhat different than the other. 
I've read it explained this way. From the palette of gift colors, the Holy Spirit uses the brush of His sovereign design to paint the mixture of each believer so that no two are alike. Everyone is unique with a unique set of gifts. So, you and I have a diverse set of gifts that God intends for us to use in order to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Do you remember what gift you got last year for your birthday? Does it take you a minute to, to remember? How about the, the birthday before last? You remember that one? Um, what about your Christmas gift? Remember what you got for Christmas? What about your wedding gift? Remember those, maybe a couple of them because you still have them. But the vast majority of them you probably don't remember. Well, it's not God's design that our gifts, that we would receive these gifts, and like some of those gifts, they get stuffed in a drawer. They, they're, they're put in the garage and they collect dust. Maybe they're re-gifted. Sometimes that happens. It does happen, right? <laughs> That's not God's design for us with the gifts that we receive. He would not want us to stuff our gifts in a, in a drawer. He would not want us to put our gifts on the shelf to collect dust. And he certainly wouldn't want us to, he wouldn't want our gift to be a, you know, an option for a white elephant exchange next year. You know, that wouldn't be the design of God's gift. But God's gifts are, are given to us so that we would put them to use in the body to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is what Paul is after in this verse. So your gift is a mark of God's love for you and is perfectly the right gift. Paul wants you and me to understand that, that we have been given a grace gift because he wants us to use it to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So, transitioning then to verses 8 through 10. We have to understand a key element to performing maintenance and doing maintenance well. And a professional will tell you this, okay? Thinking about Bob, Bob would probably tell you this if you asked him about car maintenance. Uh, a professional would tell you this, that, yeah, it's one thing to learn how to change oil, okay? It's one thing to change air filters. But if you really want to do car maintenance, you have to go back. We have to pause, and we have to go back, and we have to know how this thing works. we got to open up the engine, and we have to know how all those different parts work together and understanding the whole, seeing the whole picture will give us the, the, really what's required to do maintenance well. That would be the same if you were going to do maintenance on an AC unit. You can change the filters out. You can do basic maintenance. But you've got to go back to square one. If you really want to do good maintenance, you've got to know how it ticks. You've got to know how it ticks. And so, like a professional, Paul takes us back to the whiteboard. He pulls out the marker. And he's going to go back to the beginning, and he's going to tell us, how does this thing work? How does this thing work? And so we have essential number two. Essential number two, we need to know how our grace gifts were given. We need to know how our grace gifts were given. It's not enough for us to know that we have them, but how? What is the why? That's what Paul is after in these next verses. Verse 8, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. You can see it in your Bible there. It looks a little different. That's because it's a quote from Psalm 68. Paul is quoting Psalm 68, verse 18. 
In Psalm 68, God is depicted as a divine warrior. He's a divine warrior who achieves a great victory over his enemies and then ascends to his holy mountain. And what Paul does is he applies the ascension of Christ to this psalm. He's taking the ascension of Christ and putting it on the ascent. Now, what is the ascension of Christ? The ascension of Christ is just that Jesus, after being on the earth for 40 days, he was raised, he was on the earth for 40 days. What did he do? He was taken up in a cloud. He ascended to the heavens. It, having ascended to the heavens, he is at, he's seated at the right hand of, of God. And that's what we talked about this earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. And he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. This is what happened because of the ascension. And so Paul is going to talk about that here in these verses. He applies that ascension to this psalm. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. In the same way that God trampled over his enemies in Psalm 68, Jesus trampled over his enemies. With the ascension, Christ has emerged victorious. He has ascended to the heavenly throne where he sits, as Ephesians 1.20 says, at the right hand of God. He sits at the right hand of God. And having ascended, it says he led a host of captives, or he captured a host of captives. He captured a host of captives. Now, I believe these captives here are the hostile warriors that Christ has defeated. The same way that those warriors were defeated in the psalm by God, Jesus defeated those warriors at the ascension. Colossians 2.15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in Him. The cross, the resurrection, and the ascension stripped the enemies of their power and authority, publicly exposing them. Now, after defeating His enemies, it says, it says he, give, he gave gifts to men, to people, you and me, Quote, like a triumphant conquering, uh, conqueror, excuse me, distributing the spoils to his subjects, so Christ takes the trophies he has won and distributes them in his kingdom. He defeats his enemies, he takes those resources, and he gives gifts to men. That's what Paul's doing in this psalm. Now, in verses 9 through 10, we have this parenthetical statement. You can see the parentheses that are around verses 9 through 10. And so Paul further explains this point in verses 9 and 10. And the, the main idea is simply this, that, that Christ's ascent, the fact that he ascended, also means that he descended. That's simple enough, enough, enough for us to understand. If he went up, then he must come down. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, while it's true that, that this is a simple explanation of the ascension of Christ and the fact that he had to come down to earth, what really is here, remember, Paul's back at the whiteboard and he's telling us how, every, how this thing ticks. What Paul is really after here is communicating the, the richest and most profound profound truth of all of reality. 
It's right here in these verses. I found this quote from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. What we have here is a description of the whole movement of salvation, the great drama of salvation, a, a description of how our Lord has achieved salvation and redemption, and as the mighty victor is now giving gifts to his people in the church. That's what's happening in these verses. So Paul doesn't want us to perform the maintenance of unity without helping us understand the great drama of Scripture. Paul says in verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? As Ephesians 1.20 says, we read it, Christ is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, having put all his enemies under his feet. But we also must remember that Christ descended into the lower regions, the earth. Meaning our Savior is in heaven now, but was once where? He was once on earth. His feet were here with us. As Philippians 2 reminds us, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped onto, but he did what? He humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, taking the form of a man. He came to the lower regions, namely the earth. He came to the earth. In humbling himself, Jesus came from the highest courts of heaven to the virgin's womb. The whole drama of Scripture. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, as Philippians says. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The death of Christ reminds us that Jesus came into the world. Yes, he came into the world, but he came into the world to engage in a conflict. There was a conflict that Jesus is engaging in. As a baby, King Herod tried to kill him. Remember, he was tempted by the devil. Forty days, forty nights in the wilderness, battling with the enemy. You remember the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees? They all came against him. Even his own people, it says, they rejected him. You remember the phrase, you know, what good could come from Nazareth? He was in a great conflict. But as Philippians 2 says, he was obedient. He was obedient. He never faltered. He never faltered. He offered perfect obedience. And the crisis of obedience, you know, the arc of that obedience, the crisis point is that Garden of Gethsemane. That's, that's where that arc of obedience is. You remember what he'd cry out. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. You feel the agony because he's recognizing more than ever what it will mean to be fully obedient to God because he knows what's coming tomorrow. And the demands of obedience, yeah, it was easy up to that point. But now the crisis comes. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. The obedience of Christ. Obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our Savior went to the cross in order that this victory might be complete. As Jesus was lifted on the cross, you imagine the devil assumed a victory. 
You, you imagine he thought that he was the victor, but in putting Jesus to death, Jesus was putting the devil to death. Amen? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Although it seemed the devil had the upper hand, something great was at hand. Although the enemy seemed triumphant, he burst asunder the bands of death and rose triumphant o'er the grave. 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Having completed the work of salvation, God highly exalted him. He ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things, Ephesians 1.20. It's because Christ accomplished all that he came to do on this earth that he is now far above the heavens. And so you see, it's not enough for us to just know how to do that oil change, just to do that maintenance. We have to, we have to understand that whole drama of Scripture from the very beginning. Understanding it will help us, will empower us to do this kind of maintenance. You have been gifted to serve. Yes, you've been given a gift. But drawing out of this passage and looking at Ephesians as a whole, it's helpful and it's necessary for you to understand Ephesians 1, 19 through 23. And, and, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? What is the immeasurable power of this greatness that we have in the power, the gifts that we have? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That victory, Ephesians 4, 8. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, I'm working backwards, verse 7. Now, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. That's Paul's logic. That's what he did. <clears throat> quoting Lloyd-Jones one more time. And it is because he who ascended and is in the position to give gifts first descended and conquered all our enemies and captors and led them in his triumphant train. He has earned the right to be the head of the church and has all power. Thus, he dispenses these gifts to his people in the church according to the measure that he himself has determined, end quote. Wow. Okay. So getting back on track, getting back on track, you're probably thinking, look, I just wanted to change the oil. <laughs> I just wanted to learn a little maintenance, Paul. That's not what Paul does. Paul wants us to take us to the highest place. He wants, to, he wants us to understand why. That's what he wants. He wants us to feel it. And that is what empowers us for service in the body. Keeping this always in front of us. He who ascended is also he who descended to the earth. That's the one. Always in front of our minds. 
He wants us to know how things tick. So he took us back to the whiteboard and he explained the great drama of Scripture. Now, if you missed it, if you missed it, there's a lot there. Christ won the right by defeating Satan, the hostile principalities, the powers, the spiritual forces of wickedness, the demonic rulers and authorities, when he ascended to the throne. All of those were defeated with the ascension. And like a ruling king, that victory permits him, that is, it gives him the right to bestow on us gifts. Therefore, our gifts are testimonies, verification, they're evidence that Christ is the victor. I'm not sure if you think about your gifts that way, but when you use your gifts, you're, you're giving testimony to that victory in the use of your gifts. When you serve each other, when you exhort each other, when you contribute to each other through the church, when you lead each other, when you take mercy on each other, you are giving testimony that Christ came to earth when we do those things. That Christ died, that he was buried, that he was resurrected, and that he ascended to the right hand of God. Your gift is therefore a proclamation of Christ's victory. <clears throat> okay, there's another essential. So essential number one, we need to know that we've received a grace gift. Essential number two, we need to know how our grace gifts were given. And essential number three, we need to know what our grace gifts are for. And so as we come to the next verse, 11 through 13, really I'm just going to talk about verse 11 because there's too much here. We'll have to continue next week. Uh, Paul is going to focus on certain individuals. He's going to focus on certain gifts, but certain individuals that have those gifts that are called to minister the Word of God, uh, special roles to minister to equip the saints. That's what these roles are for. And so these, these are uh, uniquely gifted people in the body. Not all of us have these gifts. Some of us do. So Paul's just going to focus on a couple of them. And why does, he, why does he do that? Well, I think it's because these roles are, are somewhat foundational to the, to the growth of the local church. They're foundational to the local, local church. You can think of Ephesians 2.20, if you just glance over to Ephesians 2.20. When Paul's talking about the household of God, the church, he says it was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Two of the gifts he's going to talk about, apostles and prophets. So the idea of a foundation. Now he also, in, in, verses, chapter, in chapter 3, verse 5, He's talking about the mystery of Christ, which was made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So also, the, the communication of that mystery that Jew and Gentile have come together in the local church to be the body of Christ, that, that mystery was given to those apostles and prophets. Again, a foundational element to the local church. Foundational to the growth and establishment of the local church. So, Paul mentions apostles and prophets first, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, um, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now, an apostle, we've talked a little bit about this before. Danny has talked about this, is one sent on a mission. That's what the idea of an apostle is. Uh, in the most technical sense, when we think about apostles, we think of who? We think of the 12, right? We think of those 12 men that were apostles. Well, we would also include Matthias, in here because remember Judas, and so he was, Judas was replaced by Matthias, and we would also include Paul. Paul would also be 
an apostle. Well, beyond those specific 12, the Bible does also use the title of apostle for other people as well. Uh, Barnabas being one, Silas, Timothy are all referred to also as uh, apostles, not the 12, but having the gift of apostleship. Now, in, in all cases, the apostles were authenticated, it says in, first, in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, by signs and wonders and miracles. So an apostle was authenticated by doing miraculous signs. Uh, and the term, the term apostle is not used after Acts 16, 4. And so I missed the qualifications of an apostle. And, uh, the qualifications of an apostle is that they were directly chosen by Christ and they witnessed the resurrected Christ. So you had to see the resurrected Christ to be an apostle, and you had to do signs and wonders to validate that you also were an apostle. So, and the term is not used after Acts 16.4, and so it's my conviction that this role was unique to the early church, and it's no longer functioning. So this was a unique gift that God used during the foundation of the church specifically in the early chapters of the book of Acts. Now, a prophet. A prophet is one who has the gift of prophecy, okay? But it is likely that not all those who have such gifts should be called prophets. Uh, that is, one can have the gift of prophecy. Romans 12, 6 talks about the gift of prophecy. But not all who have that gift are strictly called prophets, Okay, let me explain that. Now, the New Testament prophets sometimes, uh, sometimes spoke revelation for God, from God. We understand that. He spoke revelation from God. That's what prophets do. But a prophet also explained revelation previously given. And so some, and some people have kind of delineated this as foretelling and forthtelling. Maybe you've heard that before. A prophet does foretelling and forthtelling. Now, foretelling would be predicting the future. We think of prophets, we think of them who they predict the future. That would be foretelling. Forthtelling would just be explaining past or current events or happenings. Okay, so in, 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 if we already use that distinction, then what I am doing now is forthtelling. I am not foretelling. I am not a prophet in the sense that I predict the future. I am not doing that. Although I might I'm not sure, have the gift of prophecy, which just means that I'm explaining what the text says, if we understand the gift of prophecy that way. Again, uh, like the apostles, I believe the role of the New Testament prophet, that is foretelling the future, has ceased. Hopefully this is clear. I'm trying to speak myself clear, okay? That has ceased. And so I think Ephesians 2.20 is a really significant verse, and I, and I really think that idea of foundation is, is helpful in understanding the use of these gifts in the early church, that it was a transitional phase in which apostles and prophets, New Testament prophets, were needed primarily because they didn't have this. And so, they, so God needed specially equipped and gifted men to do this kind of work that we no longer need because we have the finished word of God. So again, Ephesians 2.20, built on, that is the household of God, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Hopefully that's clear. So it, that brings us to the evangelist and the shepherd teachers. Again, we're at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Evangelists and shepherd teachers. Evangelists are individuals especially gifted to make known the redemptive message of the gospel. 
Now, I don't see any reason to believe that this is not in function today. I don't have a text for that, and I believe that there, there are people who have the gift of evangelism. I believe that's true. You probably met someone like this. When I think about the gift of evangelism, I often, often think of a missionary. I think that's fitting. I, I think if, a, if a, man want, a man or a woman wants to be a missionary and they don't have the gift of evangelism, I think we, have, we need to have some conversations. Because if they're going to go tell people about Jesus and not have the natural or the spiritual gifting for that, that's going to be problematic. So I believe that this gift is still in function today. This is the kind of person that, by the way, this is the kind of person that kind of makes you uncomfortable. You know that person? <laughs> it's like, oh, you know, if, I, if I'm going to be with that person, I'm going to be uncomfortable because they're going to tell people about Jesus in front of me. You know, do we need more people like that in our life? I think we do. I need to be more like that. I want to be uncomfortable. I want to make you uncomfortable for all the right reasons, for all the right reasons. Uh, the, 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 uh, this gift is spoken of in a couple places. Luke calls Philip an evangelist in Acts 21.8, and Paul appeals to Timothy, you probably remember, to do the work of an evangelist in 2 Timothy 4.5. And so again, I think this role, this gift package is something like a missionary. Now, the last leadership role or giftedness is the pastor teacher. Uh, th this is, you know, there, this could be two different roles, two different gifts. It could be one. There's a lot of speculation on the grammar in this verse. You'll notice, you'll notice that Paul does something here where he doesn't put the article, the definitive article, that's the, in front of uh, teachers. And so you have the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. You don't have the shepherds and the teachers, and so there's lots of speculation. So is Paul saying that the shepherd teacher is one? What is he doing there in the grammar? There's arguments on both sides. No surprise, right? Uh, so uh, I think it's probably possible that one is a subset of the other. Uh, that's the way I kind of understand it. Uh, we know that all pastors are to be teachers, we know that because the qualification to be a pastor is that he must be what? Able to teach. And so all pastors have to be teachers, but do all teachers have to be pastors? No. Because we have men and women in our church that teach every Sunday, that you teach each other. There's lots of teachers, but not every teacher is a pastor. And so that's why I think one might be a subset of the other. So what is a pastor? Uh, the word is shepherd here, but pastor, shepherd, it's the same uh, same thing. So, so uh, also, just as a side, side point, if you have the ESV, you'll actually notice there's a footnote there, and it says, or, or shepherd teachers. And so they even kind of give a nod to that idea that this is one role. Um, so what is a pastor? Well, the word carries the idea of a captain, a leader, a chief. Really, we, we oftentimes think of caretaker, and it does have the idea of caretaker, but the pastor, the, the, the word, strictly speaking, really has more of a sense of leader, Leader, chief, overseer. That's really the, the, the picture that's painted with a shepherd pastor. A pastor is a leader of the people. A model of shepherding, the best model for shepherding, is given, us, given to us by who? By Jesus, right? Jesus called himself the good shepherd. So if you look at John chapter 10, that would be a good place to go and to, to unpack what does a shepherd look like. Jesus gives us the model in John chapter 10. Being a pastor involves knowing people intimately. It involves leading them, protecting them from wolves, loving them enough to sacrifice one's life for them. All of that would come out in John chapter.
chapter 10. And so finally, we have teachers. Again, all pastors must be able to teach, but not all teachers are called to be pastors. So if you look at, if you look at Jesus as a model, you remember the, the Pharisees, when they talked to Jesus, he was a different kind of teacher, wasn't he? He wasn't like the teachers or the scribes. Or the, you know, he wasn't like that. But he taught with what? Authority. He taught with authority. And so if, if we're going to use Jesus as the pastor of a shepherd, and we, if we use Jesus as a, past, as, a, as a model for a teacher, well, I think teaching also has a lo, a, uh, an element of authority that comes with it. Okay? It's not just, oh, here's all the ideas that are out there. That's not what teaching in the church is. I mean, we can talk about different views and different ideas, but at the end of the day, we're supposed to do what? <laughs> Put our finger on what we believe the truth is. That's what we do when we teach. You think about the Great Commission. The Great Commission is that we would make disciples. How do we make this disciples? By baptizing and teaching them to obey. I say this all the time. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And so it's not good enough to teach, but you have to teach with the authority to call people to obedience. Because that's what, it's not just about lining out the commands. It's just saying, now we need to obey these commands. Well, how do we do that? Well, let's go about it. Let's work through it. And that's what we're doing. That's what I hope we do when we teach God's word. So teaching has an element of authority that comes with it. So I got to wind down here. So Paul has given us three essentials, excuse me, three essentials for maintaining unity in the body of Christ. Number one, each of us has received a grace gift. Number two, he teaches us how Christ won the right to give us grace gifts, or I think I said it, uh, how, how our grace gifts are given. That's number two. Number three, with a special focus on four or five roles, he teaches us what our gifts are for. Now, this is all connected to another really, really long sentence that Paul uses. And so, back up to 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we attain to what? To the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So that's where, that's where we're going to connect back in that idea of unity. God's, uh, God has gifted us. He, he's, Paul has called us to preserve the unity. We've been gifted for unity here are a couple of the, the, the leadership roles that God has given to the church in order that the people would be equipped to preserve that unity. That's kind of the full circle that Paul is giving us there. So, to equip the saints until we all attain to the unity of the faith. So, in closing, I open by saying it makes good sense, and you agreed with me, it makes good sense to keep our largest purchase in good working condition, to perform routine maintenance. Now, whatever your largest purchase is, it pales in comparison to redemption. It pales in comparison. Even greater your redemption, and all of our redemption, capital C, throughout the ages, all of those who have been redeemed by Christ. What an amazing purchase. 
It was purchased for us by the blood of Jesus. Jesus purchased us. You know, when we talk about maintenance, we're talking about what we've purchased. But when we talk about this, we're talking, we're talking about the church. We're talking about what Christ purchased. He purchased us. He purchased the church. Then he equipped us. He gifted us to perform regular maintenance. And chief among the items that require maintenance is our unity. Ephesians 4.3, literally, make every effort, make every effort to protect, to keep, to guard the unity. Is it possible that God has us here right now, we didn't plan this, that God has us here right now because we need to tighten down a couple screws? That we need to pull the air filter out and dust it off. That we need to run a couple laps. (laughs) Maybe so. Maybe so. I'm going to close with Psalm 133. We opened with it in our scripture reading. I want to close with it. But I want to invite you to stand. And I'm going to invite the musicians to come up. And I'm going to close with Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the beard running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron. It's kind of odd to us. But when you think about the nation of Israel, what that would have meant to them, that there's no concern of the cost of the ointment. This isn't used sparingly. It's poured over the head of Aaron and it drips off the beard. It's a storehouse of blessing and riches. Just poured over the head. No concern. The anointing. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. The, the, the ground is so rich. There's so much water in the ground that it just comes out of the ground. And wildflowers come with the first break of sun. For there is the Lord, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Amen. Joel. I'm going to sing this together. I'll obey.
Jesus, we want to ask you to teach us to obey, to maintain what needs maintained in our unity, Lord Jesus, under you. Please uh, allow the word to move in our hearts and allow us in humility to recognize our own weakness and to come to you and allow the gifts that you have given us to help us to maintain the unity that you have bought so with such a great price. Thank you for bringing us into your family. We thank you and ask that you would uh, help us to go through our week with that determination to obey where we need to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day. Thank you.